Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. I don't know how well you know the Bible or what you're familiar with as far as the Jewish culture in that time, but did you see all the language of clean, unclean, be clean, all that language that was in there to be unclean in the Bible. We find there's animals that are unclean. There's food that's unclean. I didn't eat bacon. Can you believe that? There's uh, different utensils that are unclean, um, and people could be unclean. To be unclean simply meant this, to be unfit for worship. Think about that. And the life of a leper was a pretty miserable existence because as a leper, you lived in total isolation. When you were unclean, and you could be unclean for lots of different reasons, and you can read the book of Leviticus if you're um, needing to get bored. Uh, no, if you want to read uh, lots of pieces, uh, Genesis is awesome, Exodus is awesome, and you get to Leviticus, and you're like, whoa, okay. Um, there's all these ceremonial things and these offerings, and they're so foreign to our culture, but what was happening was God was telling his people, you need to be set apart. And when you didn't do the things that you were supposed to do to be set apart, you'd be unclean. You had to go outside the community. The problem with leprosy was there was no cure. So you had to go outside the community until you were cured, and then you'd come back to the priest and present yourself. But how are you going to do that? There's no cure. So they lived a life of isolation. In fact, if you were a leper, it was your responsibility to remain six feet away from any other human. So they were social distancing before it was cool, right? Doing that. And if it was windy, they actually had a rule that if it was windy, you had to be 150 feet away. And you had to pronounce to people as you approached them, unclean, unfit for worship. The Bible prescribes that, actually, in Leviticus. We'll put the verse up on the screen. Leviticus chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. Talking about a leprous man. He is a leprous man. I'm talking about his wounds. And he is unclean. Well, there's that word again. The priest, so a spiritual authority in your life, must pronounce you unfit for worship, unclean. His disease is on his head. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. He shall cover his upper lip. And cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And so can you imagine, can you even imagine, like think about the isolation, like we're made for community. It's not good for man to be alone. You're in isolation. And then whenever people do come around, unclean, unclean, don't come by me. I'm broken, unfit for worship. It's a life of shame. And with just two words, Jesus changes that. Shame's an interesting feeling. It's a negative emotion. Um, A lot of times in our culture, it's always talked about as bad, and it gets mixed up sometimes with guilt. Guilt is actually pretty clear. Biblically, guilt is when you've done something wrong, it's black and white. You did something wrong, you should feel guilty. You didn't do anything wrong, you shouldn't feel guilty. But shame seems more nebulous to us. It has more to do with our identity and our worth before God. And the reality is, biblically, it has to do with our standing before God. And so there is a time for you to feel ashamed. Uh, if you don't believe that's true, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14, you can jump into that yourself, or you look in Matthew chapter 18 when Jesus is telling people uh, how to discipline folks in the church. When they're, they're claiming to be followers of Christ, they won't repent of their sins, you put them out, and so they should then feel the shame of that. So when you're living in shame, there should be some shame. But when you've got right standing with God and you feel shame, that's not right. So why, why do you feel that? And a lot of times it has to do with our worth, and it's a very powerful feeling. We see it in the book of Genesis. Remember, they were naked and they felt no shame. That must have been an amazing world, huh? It's the perfect world, and then they blow it. 
And see, a lot of times shame comes because we fail. We failed. Is there anyone here who's failed at something? Would you raise your hand if you failed ever at anything? All right, 99% of you, one of you's lying at church. <laughs> Fail, big L, by the way, on that one. We've all failed. Whether you failed a test, maybe you went to make a cake for somebody's birthday, recipe didn't go good, you wrecked your car, you ruined your marriage. Like, there's lots of ways that we fail. They ruined the world in Genesis chapter 3. They were naked and felt no shame, then they sinned and they hid. You know why? Shame. And then God comes, comes pursuing them in their shame. One of the things I love about this story is that Jesus steps into the man's dark. No, you can't go by that guy. The God of light steps into his darkness. Some of you a couple weeks ago were here when one of our pastor's wives, Leslie Morley, Pastor Dave's wife, was sharing about one of the most shameful sins she's ever done. She had an abortion. And some of you sat there when she said that and thought, wow, what courage. Others of you thought, I could never do that. Why? Why? Why could you never do that? Shame. And then she went on to talk about her position in Christ and the freedom she has now because the healing she's experienced through Christ and the forgiveness in Jesus and now who she is in Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. Hmm. And so I love in that story that Jesus comes to this guy, wounds all over his body, He's got a physical illness, and he doesn't say be healed. He says, be fit for worship. Be clean. Oh, I'm going to go tell everybody Austin. Go to the spiritual authority who told you you were unfit for worship and show them you're fit for worship. You're clean. And then my favorite part about what the chosen did in that, and we don't have the verses of this, but of course this would be what would happen. Can you imagine a leper's wounds being healed right before your eyes? And you see the faces of the people that that a minute ago were going, don't go by that guy. They saw transformation. And today what we're going to talk about uh, is part two in Matthew chapter nine. We're not actually looking at the story of the leper. The leper sets up what happens with Matthew. And and so what we're looking at in Matthew chapter nine, verses nine through 13, I've called chosen for transformation, which is two, could God change your life today with just two words? You think about the shameful experiences maybe you've had, maybe the marriage that you ruined, maybe some abuse that you've experienced, maybe something that maybe you try to take your life and no one here knows, or maybe you're about to, and there's just this shame and you feel worthless and you're not good enough. Sexual sin, a lot of times, is associated with shame. We don't get ashamed of gossip. We don't get ashamed. We we do it on social media. I mean, we, we, gluttonous, lazy, like all kinds of stuff we're not ashamed of, but there's certain sins that are shame, lying, stealing, adultery, Pornography. Could God change all of that with just a couple words today? I'm going to say more than two, uh, but let's see what he says. <clears throat> uh, what's happening, uh, just to remind you, uh, picking up where we left off last week, um, in Matthew, Jesus has just preached the most powerful message uh, anyone's ever heard or recorded, the Sermon on the Mount. And that's in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, if you want to read that on your own. Uh, Jesus does not bring a new morality and said he's going after people's hearts. And at the end of it, people say they had never seen this kind of authority, never heard this kind of teaching. His first encounter then is with the leper, the video we just watched is the, the passage in Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 1, and with just two words, be clean, he changes that guy's life. And what we're seeing is the power of his word. He's just done this teaching, now we see it applied. The next story, an enemy. He's just talked about loving your enemies. What good is it if you love those who love you? Even the tax collectors do that, he said. And now... A Gentile soldier who's leading the oppression of the Jewish people comes to Jesus and asks, hey, I've got authority. People do what I say. 
you've got authority. Can you just say that my servant will be healed and he'll be healed? You don't even have to come to my house. I'm not worried to have you come to my house. And Jesus says, how many times you can read your Bible as Jesus amazed at someone's faith? I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel, he says of this guy. And with the word of his mouth, just his word, heals the guy. He didn't even go see him. Heals him. Power of his word. There's a storm. Shh, be quiet, wind, waves. Power of his word. Right before our passage we're going to read today, there's a paralyzed guy. He gets dropped to the roof while Jesus is teaching. Jesus stops his teaching because how could you not? (laughs) The power of his word. He says, you're forgiven, but you can't see forgiveness. So to show that he has the power to forgive sins, he says, grab your mat and go back to your place, your house, your crib, whatever you want to call it then. And the guy does. Everybody's amazed. And then Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. That's our passage today. And I would just encourage you with this, thinking about the power of his word. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man. We've seen that he's the God who sees. Probably the guy that's least interested of everybody because everybody's excited about this miracle he just did. But he saw a man sitting, Matthew sitting at the tax tree. He's not climbing up on a tree like Zacchaeus. He's doing his job. I got work to do. Ah, Jesus guy coming by. And he said to him, follow me. Two words. And he rose and he followed him. That's the amazing thing. Just like the guy in the story before, rise, take your mat, and go home. The amazing thing is that Matthew's sitting in his tax collector's booth. Jesus says two words, follow me. And I talked about last week. Like If I showed up at your work and I said to you, follow me, you should ask some questions. Where? Why? When are we going to be back? (laughs) Matthew doesn't ask any of that. And you think about who he's going, yeah, he's going with Jesus. Jesus, one of his followers is a zealot. <laughs> That's a political enthusiast. They would kill Romans. Matthew works for the Romans. They kill Romans because they oppress the Jews. <laughs> Matthew funds those people. Who's he stealing money from? Well, usually you take bribes from rich people, and we don't know this for sure about Matthew specifically, but... Common people, like fishermen who would fish on the Sea of Galilee. Oh, I don't know. The majority of Jesus' disciples? Hey, come follow me. I'm not so sure about that crew you're hanging with, Jesus. They don't like me a lot. But he goes. Because there's power in Jesus' word. With just two words, could Jesus change your life today? Here's the reality. Uh, If you're going to experience God's cleansing, you must answer Jesus' calling. That's our first point. You're going to experience God's cleansing. You must answer Jesus' calling. And you think about that. I know that it's not lost on me that to answer a call nowadays is not the most popular thing ever. Some of you, if I call you, you're thinking to yourself, don't you love me? Why didn't you text? Right? Like, like who here actually answers their phone? Especially if you don't have the caller ID on. Okay? You got some people? You answer your phone? Y'all are risky adventure seekers. You don't know. I was trying to tell my kids the other, the other day. Well, the context of what happened the other day in my house is I was dancing around my house doing stuff. My kids, my kids are embarrassed by me just because of my presence. Like, I'd understand if their friends were there. Like, they're at this stage where, like, like if mom dancing around and, the, like, one of my daughters, I drop her off at carpool, she goes, like, three cars away so I don't say anything to her. <laughs> they just, I get it in front of your friends, but nobody was over our house. And they're like, Dad, stop dancing. Brah, stop. Cut it out. You're done. Done. L. You know, it's over. Oh, and they hate it when I use their words. They get so shook. <laughs> it's different when I do it, I guess. I don't know. 
So I'm dancing around the house. They're telling me to stop. I said, you know that when we were, we were when I was a kid, we didn't have caller ID. Like we didn't have cell phones. Like, I didn't have a cell phone. We had a phone at our house that had a cord attached to it. And you never knew what was going to happen if you picked that thing up. <laughs> All right? It's like, you might miss out on something good or, oh man, why did I answer this call? It's like, so sometimes now, I'll, I'll just answer. If it says unknown caller, I'm like, all right, let's see what's happening. Car warranty. You don't even know what kind of car I drive. I'm like, Dang it. So, this week, I had turned my phone on silence uh, Sunday for service. I recommend that for everybody, by the way. And uh, I forgot to turn it off, but I was expecting a call from the doctor on Monday. On Thursday, I got real mad. Like, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I'm like, hey, it's Thursday. My doctor still hasn't called. Why hasn't he called yet? Go to the oh, I've got five voicemails. <laughs> Three of them are from his office. Okay. The reality is he was calling. I wasn't listening. And that's true for a lot of us with God. He's speaking. In John chapter 10, uh, we often go to John chapter 10 because we love that passage that Jesus came that we could have abundant life. But it says later in that passage, John chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep, my people, uh, they hear my voice. They know my voice when he speaks. Do you even know when it's him? I was reading before church this morning. You could basically take any prophet and get a verse that says something like this. But in Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 13, it talks about God kept calling. We weren't answering. Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 13 says, And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Mm. And then we go, well, how's he speaking? Well, he tells us the primary way he speaks to us today is through his word. He says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is God, even Leviticus, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training and righteousness. And he's talking, are we listening? And you think about just in, just in the Bible, so I'm not even talking about like every experience anybody's ever had, just in the Bible, all the different ways that God speaks. He speaks through parables. He speaks through sermons, Matthew 5 through 7. He speaks through letters, a bunch of the epistles. He speaks through prophetic words, things are going to happen in the future, the book of Revelation. He speaks through poetry, uh, read much of the wisdom literature, like the Psalms and Proverbs. And he speaks through stories and narrative, like with the leper and here with Matthew. And that's just, just the different um, things that he, he, are different ways he uses the Bible in our lives now. But you think about when it was in the Bible, the way he spoke to people. Uh, Moses in a burning bush. Yeah, I don't think he was expecting that. He's hiding because of his guilt of murder and trying to live an obscure life. A bush starts talking to him. Think about dreams, Joseph. Angels appearing to people. That's not normal. You might think it's normal in the Bible. The Bible covers a long period of time, and we get these instances where it's not like everybody's going, who's the angel today? You know, where's the angel? Alexa, please show angel. Sorry, those of you who are at home. Um, <laughs> It's like angels, burning bushes, a donkey one time, the prophets, questions. But I mentioned Genesis chapter 3, God doesn't have questions. He knows everything. So they're hiding in their shame, in their sin, and God says, who told you you were naked? God knows. So he speaks to, are we listening? Sometimes it doesn't happen the way we expect. I love an uh, old friend of mine, one of the guys on the elder team, sent me a devotional from... Um, 1 Kings 19, i got to preach that passage again. I just love the passage. What happens is there's a great victory that Elijah has over these prophets, and then he's depressed. He's upset. And God says, 
take a nap, get a snack. <laughs> Let's not be foolish about this. And then how would you expect? And then there's an earthquake and a fire and a whirlwind. And it says, God didn't speak through the whirlwind. He's not speaking in these miraculous ways like you're expecting. It's this whisper, this still small voice. Are you listening? Because what you see when you start going through all that stuff in the Bible is that God speaks oftentimes in unexpected ways, at unexpected times. Like we always think like you got to, if I had the perfect environment, right? And so you like weekend retreat in the mountains close to the, you know, somewhere where Billy Graham was one time. And so you go there and you got like the perfect coffee that was, you know, free trade and the perfect temperature and whatever cup that's got a verse on it and the Mountain Dew, and it's 5 a.m., which is a godly. I found out that was a godly hour when I became a Christian. Before I was a Christian, I was like, that's an ungodly hour. But, apparently, you're more, I mean, the church I went to is like, you're more godly if you read your Bible in the morning than at night, which stinks because I'm like a night person. <laughs> no hope. Jesus got to change. And what happens when you get in that moment and then it's like, I don't, I don't know, God's not speaking to me. And then you read your Bible and you're like, Gideon was at work. <laughs> he wasn't expecting that. Moses was murdered, and I already mentioned Adam and Eve were hiding from God, and God spoke to them, and so you've got burning bush, people that are rebelling, uh, all kinds of stuff happening, God speaking all the time in all kinds of different ways. He tells us in Hebrews today, He speaks through His Son, Jesus. What's He saying to you? He speaks to unexpected people in unexpected ways, often at unexpected times. Some of you have seen, I've been praying for a couple of our elders because one of our elders uh, just recently donated his, in fact, last Wednesday, donated his kidney uh, to one of our other elders. I think we have a picture of them here. Uh, that's John Reeves is one of our elders on the left, John Reeves Jr., and one of our elders on the right, uh, Todd Boffman, uh, both handsome men. It's the day of surgery, so you can forgive John's hair in that picture. He's got the most amazing hair of anybody in our church. And, uh, and for those of you um, who been, didn't already know of that, what was happening, uh, we were at an elder retreat earlier this year in January, and uh, John's been struggling with his health for a long time. We knew that uh, back in 2019. He had an autoimmune, autoimmune disease, and we knew it had done some minor damage to his kidneys. We didn't know his kidneys uh, were failing, and he told us in January that he needed a kidney transplant. And Todd was sitting next to him, and Todd had been uh, an elder for about 14 months, I think, at that point, and he just hits him on the shoulder and says, I got you. I'm your guy. And he grabs a donut, starts eating it. And the rest of us are like, did he just say he'd give his kidney? Why are you eating a donut? That's my judgmentalism. I'm like, why are you eating a donut? Anyway. So, and then we kind of just moved on from that and I prayed over John. And then we'd like hear these stories and the elder meetings periodically was like, oh yeah, I got, Todd would be like, I was telling my boss I need some time off so I can do them. And I got to share the gospel with them. I got to share the gospel with somebody else. He's telling these different stories. And finally, in one of the elder meetings, I goes, hold on, you keep saying like, are you having a kidney? Yeah, getting a kidney. What happened? <laughs> And he goes, oh, it's a big story. It's a long story. And I'm like, well, I'm into those. <laughs> and he says, and I won't tell all the details now. I'll let them share the story at some point. But the reason why he was able to do it so casually in that moment is because he'd already prayed about it. In fact, he said three years earlier, in 2019, before he even knew John Rees, and John didn't even know he needed a kidney at that point, he said, I was asking God, like, what do you want me to do next? And God said, you have two kidneys. Give one of them away. And then he started looking for, he said, at that moment, I gave it to the Lord, like a kidney belonged to him. I just got to find out what person's supposed to get it. And there was a guy that he was serving that actually needed a kidney. And he thought, well, this is the guy. And then he realized that guy's not eligible for the kidney. He's like, well, maybe it's not that. And so then sometimes you're like, well, did I hear right? What's going on? Then he said, I preached a message where I talked about a kidney transplant. Now, I don't even remember that. I remember, you know, sometimes it's like God just says certain things to people I mean, I believe that I did. It makes sense, right? It's a gospel parallel. You have a problem you can't solve. Kidney. Sin. 
You need someone else to step in and sacrificially be your substitute. Jesus on the cross lived a life we couldn't live, died the death that we deserve to die. I'll give you your kidney. I have a kidney that works, and you don't have a kidney that works. I give you mine. He gave his life. He became poor so we could become rich. He became sin so we could become righteous. And so the substitution makes sense. I believed him. I was like, okay. And he goes, so I leaned over to my wife, Vanessa, and I said, well, maybe God's not done with this. And so I kept praying about it, and now I'm just looking for the person. And he becomes an elder, and then he knows that John's sick, but he didn't know he needed a kidney. And then he says it at this meeting, and then at that point, he's been praying for two and a half years. He's like, I got you. I'm your guy. I'd have been like, stop being the donut if I was John Reed. <laughs> so last Wednesday, he gave him his kidney. Here's the summary of the story. And like I said, you'll get more details later. The summary of the story is this. God was leading, and Todd was listening. And so this week, my wife, they're recovering both of them. Oh, I see Todd. Uh, here today. Thank you so much, Todd. Appreciate you there. Praise the Lord for your sacrifice. Yeah, My Shanna took a, new, a meal to um, the Reeves this week, and um, you don't want me bringing you a meal. I'll bring you like SpaghettiOs. And so she made some uh, food and took it over there. She came back. I was like, how's John? She was like, he looks good. I was like, he don't look that good. Chill out. Like, I know about his hair. Anyway, um, so just kidding. Just kidding. Um, and then Todd and I are going to go over his journal this week because I'm like, I want to hear more about how God spoke. And he's already told me this. He said, in 2019, the way that it started is he was asking God, what's next? And I love that for us because I think a lot of times Christians think living by faith is I've placed my faith in Jesus. Yeah. And then it's a life of faith. And so he's going, what's next? And the only way you can know what's next is if you're listening. And so then it's a journey through that process. God speaks. Are you listening? Uh, the first message that he tells is the one that... He speaks to all of us. He's got a unique calling for each of us. Each one of you here is not supposed to give away your kidney. Just the same as each one of you here is not supposed to adopt. Each one of you here is not supposed to you know, end human traffic. Each one of you here is not supposed to serve AIDS patients. Each one of you here doesn't need to do specific things, but he's got specific things for each one of you here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Before you were, you talk about, is there life in the womb? Before you were in the womb, God had a plan for you. Prepared for, before, the, before there was time, much less you, He's planned that out, and so you listen so you can walk in that plan. Mm. He's calling. You listening? The first call is, for all of us, follow me. And that means turning for all of us, which is what happened for Matthew here. He stopped, stopped his work, stopped working for the Roman government, stopped going his own. The Bible says it like this. There's a way that seems right to a person, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. But in the end, it leads to death. Most of us don't know that we're going away from God, that we're headed for destruction. And if you, when you know you're headed for destruction, of course you're not going to keep going that direction. But when God speaks and says, stop and turn, the language the Bible uses is repentance. And that's what repentance means. You're going towards deception, turn to the truth. You're going towards darkness, turn to the light. You're going towards sin, stop, turn to my forgiveness. You're going towards, and it's all the stuff that seems right to us, but it leads to destruction. And so Jesus' message, same as John the Baptist's message, first message Jesus preaches, repent. And that's what Matthew did. And what happens is, when you turn to Jesus, you begin a relationship with Jesus, now you're on a road of transformation. So you're going to answer that call. This is to experience God's cleansing. We're supposed to answer God's calling. That was our first point. But the second point is this. If you're going to follow him, if you're going to travel the road that Jesus travels, it's a road 
of transformation. Those of you who like to take notes, say like this, following Jesus is traveling the road of transformation. And we get a promise. This promise isn't for everybody. This promise is for everybody who's made that initial turn. And it's given by a guy who God spoke to him while he was persecuting the church. On his way to arrest Christians, unexpected people, unexpected ways, he sees a light from heaven. God blinds the guy and turns him to him. And, and he tells us what God says to all of us when we turn. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. He says, I'm sure of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Matthew's at the beginning of that journey because he's turned. No one's born a Christian. Don't miss that. I've always been in the, I remember one time talking to a guy who told me, you know, well, I was at church from the time I was in a, a stroller. And so, I've, I mean, I've always been a Christian. No one's always been a Christian. You're not born. You have to be born again to be a Christian. In order to experience that, you've got to turn to Jesus. That's what Matthew's done. And now look what happens next. It says in verse 10, we read verse 9, Jesus saw him and said, follow me. But then verse 10, it says, last week we looked at this passage of Scripture from the perspective of Jesus, a different Savior, an unparalleled Savior. Now we're looking at it from the perspective of the guy who followed him, a different kind of disciple who's being transformed. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So Matthew throws a party. It's at Matthew's house. I love a lot of stuff that the chosen does. I did not like that they had Jesus say, we're going to have a party at your house because the Bible doesn't say that. It's probably more likely that Matthew decided to have a party just like Nathaniel ran and grabbed Philip, hey, we found, we found the Messiah. Like, you got to come meet this guy. Andrew goes to his brother Peter, hey, we, you got to come meet you. And so Matthew's probably like, the guy that was just teaching that sermon? Yeah. He just called me to follow him. And so all the other unclean people going, I want a religious teacher who's got power unlike we've ever seen before. The teachers with authority unlike we've ever seen before wants to be with us. We can't even go to the temple. Oh, they couldn't go to church. Jesus took church to them at Matthew's house. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, I'm not talking to Jesus, talking to the disciples, why does your teacher, not the teacher anymore, your teacher, eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he, that's Jesus, heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's one of the things I love about this passage, is that Jesus likes parties. <laughs> and you see that throughout the Bible. There's one Bible commentator, his name is John Corson, and uh, he says this exact quote, we'll put it on the screen, take a picture of it if you want it. There were three places Jesus consistently frequented. Open places where he preached to the masses, and so even if you're a tax collector, can't go to the temple, you can hear Jesus teach. Quiet places where he prayed to his father and festive places. Listen to what he says about that. Where he would celebrate with people. When you read the Gospels, you can't help but see that Jesus loved to go to parties. Whether it was in the home of a religious leader like Simon the Pharisee, or in that of Matthew, a tax collector with the riffraff of society, Jesus was often in attendance at feasts or festivals. This shouldn't surprise us, considering that the first public miracle he did, he ever did, was turning water into wine, not for the purpose of serving communion. Sorry, <laughs> some of you that are offended by that. But simply in order that a wedding celebration could continue, Jesus had the ability to attract people to himself constantly, and get this, and to enjoy being with others immensely. Hmm. 
And so that's, yeah, amen. I'll give the Lord Jesus a hand for who he is. Yeah. And you think about what that means for us then, because what's heaven going to be like? And he's in charge, and he likes parties? Oh, that's going to be, it's going to be lit, kids. It's going to be lit. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to get so in trouble. <laughs> but you see what happens here is, remember, Matthew's just turned. And it's really interesting, um, sometimes when you read the other accounts of the same story, and we don't have time to do all that here, it's not a Bible study today, but uh, Matthew chapter 9 is also written down in Mark chapter 2 and in Luke chapter 5. And what's interesting from a historic perspective, if you're just studying the Bible, you just want to know what is God saying to me through this passage now, so all the other details don't matter, but... If you're trying to historically like put the pieces together, like, like a, a chosen would do, you're going, well, what does Mark say that Luke doesn't? What does Luke say? And Luke tells us some things that Matthew doesn't say. And Matthew's talking about himself. And so I think Matthew's being humble. In fact, it's really interesting if you read Matthew's gospel, there's not a single word by Matthew. What a humble guy. And one of the things that Luke tells us that Matthew doesn't tell us is that Matthew left everything. I think you can argue that he had a greater cost of following Jesus than any of the other disciples. Because you can go back to fishing, and they do. You can't go back to tax collecting. And you had Roman government coverage, and now you're going to hang out with Simon the Zealot. You don't even know if you're going to die. He's in. Come to my house. It's yours. Another interesting thing is that Mark and Luke use a different name than Matthew uses for himself. And we don't know why for sure. Maybe he had a double name. Maybe it was the southern part of Israel, <laughs> Mary Beth and Billy Joe and you know, all the different middle names, double names. But we do know in the Bible, oftentimes God changes people's names when he changes their identity and he's transforming them. We just saw that with Peter uh, in John chapter 1 when he says, hey, you're no longer going to be able to see fish. You're going to be called, Peter, you're the rock. And you're like, you read about Peter and you're like, he ain't no rock. Like he's up and down, 110, zero, in and out. Like it's all this stuff. He's a mess. But God's got a plan for him. He's going to make him into that. He's begun the road of transformation. The name that's used in Mark and Luke for Matthew is Levi. But we know it's the same story, same details. We know it's the same guy. Levi might mean that he was a Levite, which would be of the priestly tribe, which would be interesting for someone who's unclean and not allowed to go to the temple. I wonder what that family thinks of him, who named him that. Matthew means gift of God. Kind of like how Abram became Abraham, the father of a multitude. Or Jacob, who's a grasper, and that's what his name refers to, grasping the heel of his brother on the way out, always trying to get his own thing, very manipulative, a liar, wrestles with God, then God changes his name to Israel, which means fighter for God. God's power. Man, what an incredible thing if, if Jesus has changed his name to gift up an outsider. You're not worthy. You don't belong. No, you're a gift from God. Oh, man. But, like what oftentimes happens when you take this step and you start to experience this freedom, then shame comes back. Look what happens here. Don't miss how this happens, is that the Pharisees are speaking to the disciples. And so Matthew's probably the one that opened the door. We don't know that. It's hosted at his house, where it just says to the disciples. And he comes out and says, why does your teacher eat with people like you? Shame is speaking again. But then Jesus steps in. Don't miss that. That'll be important in just a second. 
The New Living Translation uh, translates Matthew 9:11 like this. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? These kinds of people. And you're one of them. Wow. Remember last week, you only came for sinners, right? You got it. So here you got, you got a guy who's just stepped out of darkness into light. He's just stepped out of deception into truth. He's just stepped out of his sin and into righteousness now with relationship with Jesus. And so somebody's there to remind him, but you're going to fail again. You're a failure. Isn't it? So Jesus loves parties. You know what always happens? There's always a killjoy at a party. Some fun sucker that's going to come ruin that whole thing. In the church, we call them legalists. Legalists are people that are like, they come up with all these rules, they're not in the Bible, but it's their thing, and if you disagree with them, boom, you're canceled. Like, it's the, we didn't start a cancel culture at the pandemic, just so you know. It's always been the case. And so whether it's the Pharisees that, I remember when I first became a Christian, you know, and he was like, you can't use this kind of music, you can't do this. I'm more concerned with like the beverages in your refrigerator than what's going on in your heart. What's going on in your heart is way worse. <laughs> Some of you know. But we live in that culture now as a whole. And it's not about religion, not although our religion is oftentimes our culture. It's if you disagree with me politically, or if you think different things about the economy, or about vaccines, like, are we getting too personal? Like, we can just keep going. Like, anything you just, we disagree, we're done. It's over. So there's no category for the legalist of what Jesus is doing here. Because Jesus isn't just with Matthew, who's been forgiven. There's prostitutes and murderers and all the people that are unclean is who's at this house. Jesus is accepting prostitutes. He's not endorsing prostitution. He's accepting tax collectors. He's not endorsing their dishonesty, the robbery, even the Roman oppression. He's accepting murderers. Jesus isn't pro-murder. So, Jesus has just preached a message. These guys know this. In the message, you go read it on yourself. Matthew chapter 5, I think it's verse 48. Jesus is talking about loving your enemies. And he goes to the Pharisees, what good is it if you only love people who love you? Don't even the tax collectors do that? The people you say are the worst, most despised people? Last week when I was teaching on them, I used a parallel with Jeffrey Dahmer to get the shock effect that Jesus would be with this guy? <sighs> so, Christians... Who are your friends that you actually disagree with? And they know you disagree with them. Not because you're being some wimpy, like, oh, yeah, everything's good. Everything's true. Whatever true. No, you like the truth, but you can accept people without promoting their positions. I said about, I don't know, a few weeks ago, no matter if somebody is going to hell, who cares who they're sleeping with? Who cares how they're voting? There's nothing more important that they're headed for hell. Love them. You can accept people without approving what they do, what they think. Listen, I disagree with myself sometimes. That's a tough existence. My <laughs> wife and I don't agree about I live in the same house. We don't agree about everything. You agree, like, you're fooling yourself. If you think everybody, oh, Jesus is showing this, this love here that's beyond what even the tax collectors do. In fact, the tax collectors are like, who's this guy? Hangs out with all these people. And then these people step in and they go, hold on, you're with these kind of people? Don't you know these are sinners? And that's why I think Jesus is being sarcastic. He was like, I only came for sinners. You don't need me because you don't have any of that, right? <laughs> and the reality is that shame's stepping back in. I was listening to a talk on shame uh, by a woman named Brene Brown. I've listened to her give several different talks. She's kind of famous for doing one on Ted 
uh, called uh, Vulnerability, The Power of Vulnerability, something like that. But her actual title is that she's a shame researcher. And she jokes sometimes in some of her talks of like, oh, that's a fun person to meet on a plane. <laughs> Hi, I'm a shame researcher. I don't talk to you anymore. I'd love to talk to her. I think she says some great things. Everything she says isn't true, but she says some great things. And she was giving a talk called Listening to Shame that I was listening to. And she said this, and I, I trust that as someone who talks to people about this all the time and studies this, that she would know better than me. She says that shame drives two big tapes. Never good enough. And if you can talk it out of that one, who do you think you are? Okay. Well, let's test that biblically. If we're Christians, let's think biblically about what she's saying. So the first one, you're not good enough. What is it, what, if, if shame spoke to you, if shame was personified and said to you, you're not good enough, and then Jesus did what he does in this passage, he steps in and speaks on your behalf, what would he say? Well, if you don't have Jesus speak on your behalf, the Bible talks about that, it says it's true, you're not good enough. In fact, the Bible says, Isaiah chapter 64, that the best righteousness that you can muster up is like a pile of used menstrual cloths, that we all, like sheep, have gone astray, that we all fall short of God's perfect standard, that we're all sinners, we fall short of the glory of God. So without Christ, that's actually true you're not good enough, and until you realize that to the point that it makes you turn like the leper who's not supposed to approach people, but the pain's so bad, and I've heard there's somebody that can help, until you turn to him. It's true, but once you turn to him, he was good enough. He lived a life without sin, and that's why when he died on the cross, he was absorbing the penalty of your sin. He was your substitute. He is your sacrifice at the cross, if you've turned to him. And then it says about you, oh man, we could go through the Scriptures all, all day long. It says that you are holy before him, that you are salt and light. It's good enough. You're more, even the worst things that happened to you, some of your shame comes from some of the worst things that have happened to you. It says you're more than a conqueror, Romans 8, 37. That's what it says about you. And it says, well, if you can get past that, there's another one, she said, so let's test that biblically. Who do you think you are? Oh, man, then we can go through every identity statement in the, the, the Bible. Like you think about how that, that tape recorder of shame will play in your mind sometimes. Maybe you did ruin your marriage. Maybe somebody left you. You've been abandoned or betrayed or lied to, and, and you think, well, nobody wants me. Oh, but Hebrews chapter 13, no, God will never leave you or forsake you. John 3, 16, God loves you. He loves the whole world. Yeah, but he loves you as his child differently than he loves the whole world. Oh, dig into that in the Bible a little bit. You said, I'm holy? Well, Ephesians chapter 1 says that you're holy. It says you are adopted. You know what happens when you're adopted? You get a new name. Well, how does that, when you came to Christ, did you get a new name? Read this verse if you want to dig into this more. Revelation chapter 2 verse 17 says that we are going to be given a stone. There's a secret name on it. Ooh, what's, that going to, what's your name in heaven? Huh? You got a new name. You have a new identity. And these identity statements, the Ephesians chapter 1 says that you're made holy and whole that you have every spiritual blessing, that you've, it's been planned before the beginning of time that you'd be adopted into God's family, that you're a son of the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and that you're a royal priesthood and Peter, a holy nation. That's the body of Christ. That's you. Your identity is different in Christ. And that's pretty amazing. Think about that. Your divine royalty the King of kings and Lord of lords has adopted you into his family, given you access to every spiritual blessing. 
You have access to that now, not one day. Your identity's been changed. So what is shame? Shame is the, you're not good enough? Oh no, but Jesus was, and I'm in him. And my identity is defined not by what I do, but by who he is and what he's done. Okay, so that can't be true about me. Oh, but, but if they ever knew, and what about, it's like, that's, well, I'm going to hide some imposter syndrome nonsense that Satan's given to me. Just bring it on to the light. Yeah, I've done stupid stuff. Doesn't that make Jesus look even better? Wow. You're, but here's one of the problems. We mess up the application of that. And I'm not just talking about like prosperity churches. I'm not just talking about like, you know, some self-help nonsense that you see out there. I'm talking about like all over the place within Christianity. Talk, almost every time I hear identity talked about, it gets twisted when it's time to apply it. I'm a son of the king. So you better treat me like a king. Yes, queen, slay. Oh, they're going to hate me. Kids are going to hate me. <laughs> when you see people taking the title of divine royalty and then using it like a pagan, because remember Jesus said the Gentiles lorded over people. You're going to make people serve you? That doesn't sound like my kind of royalty because the Son of Man didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom sacrifice in substitute for people for what they deserved. I'm not giving them what they deserved. I'm showing them a different kind of love. See, here's the application point for today's message. When you're secure in Jesus, and that only happens with spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is when your identity in Christ, the things the Bible says about you is true, is aligned with your activity in Christ, the way you live your life. That's spiritual maturity. When those things align, when they're off, it doesn't mean that it's not true. It just means you're out of alignment. Time for an alignment. That's maturity. That's the, that's the road of transformation. That's what we're all in process of. He who began that good work, he's doing that as you follow him, as you listen. But when you're secure in that, now you're free to serve. When you're secure in Jesus, you can serve like Jesus. And so go with me in your minds to a few years from now. Matthew's just started this journey in Matthew chapter 9. But in John chapter 13, uh, what happens is Luke tells us the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest, so they still don't have it figured out. And no one's washed anybody's feet. Jesus is about to die. He's hours away from being crucified. They're arguing about who's the greatest. It's about to be the Passover, so they're having the Passover meal with the sacrificial lamb, empty chair because the Messiah's coming. Doesn't need to be empty anymore. Jesus is there. They're not getting what's happening. They're arguing about who's the greatest, and then I told you it's interesting sometimes why Bible guys say what they say, and then they don't say certain things. Why does John tell us what he tells us in John chapter 13 in the first couple of verses? It's real interesting. He gives us the setting, of course, now before the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Some say to the uttermost. Okay, so he's demonstrating love. This is a demonstration of love. It says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Why does John say what he says in these next two words? Does Jesus know everything? It says, Jesus knowing. And what we're about to get are identity statements who he is, why he's here, where he's going. You answer those questions, they're in the Bible, then you know your identity. That the Father had given all things into his hands. Remember later he's going to say all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He's got all the power. Remember, he knows who Judas is. If you had all the power and your enemy was sitting right there, and then he had come from God, you know whose he is, and he's going back to God. He knows where he's going. So he rose from the supper. He laid aside his teaching robe of authority, rabbi robe. He puts on a towel. 
He does a task that's reserved for Jewish slaves weren't supposed to be allowed to do this. Slaves, Jewish slaves. Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's supposed to grab a Gentile slave, the lowest one. And Jesus puts on the towel, he ties around his waist, and if you know the passage, what happens, he ties into what we've been talking about. He has this conversation where he gets to Peter, and Peter's arguing, he's telling John, like, You're, you get down and wash my feet. Like, I'm greater than you. Then Jesus comes over, he's like, but not you. <laughs> At least he had that part right. He's like, you can't wash my feet. And then Jesus is like, yeah, if, you don't, if I don't wash your feet, you're not clean. He's like, well, then do the whole thing. That's Peter. He goes, no, you don't need that. Because at the moment of salvation, you've been made clean. He says, I only need to wash your feet. He said, you're already clean. But not all of you, not Judas. Some people look clean, they ain't clean. It's going on in the heart. But he washes Judas' feet. He washes Peter's feet. He washes all their feet. And when he gets to the end of it, he says to them, for I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. That's who Jesus is. He's the master. He's the one who sends us as his messengers. If you know these things, blessed are you if you memorize them. If it just said that, we'd be killing it. If you do them, if you do them. So two applications today. One, you need cleansing. Jesus says, be clean. And he's the one who makes it possible because of who he is and the power of his word if you'll confess your sins and clean up your act. That's not what the Bible says. Based on who he is, if you'll confess your sins, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful, he is just, and he will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And so if you haven't turned to Jesus, that's the only thing you need to do today, and it's the most important thing in your life, and I challenge you to turn to Jesus. If you have turned to Jesus, um, Martin Luther, the great reformer who um, confronted the, all the corruption of the Catholic Church, said repentance is a regular part of the Christian life. So you need your feet washed. It's not because you're not a Christian anymore, it's just restoring fellowship. The church fathers would say it like this, you've got union with Christ, but you may be lacking communion with Christ. And so you, you repent because you want to reconnect, and so you might need to do that. And Some of you are secure in who you are in Christ. Then who are you going to serve? Because Jesus wasn't just serving the people he liked. Judas was there. Father, we come before you today. Thank you that you make us clean. Thank you that by just the, the word, like you don't have to do some seance. You don't have to like give a massage before you fix somebody's leg. Like you say the word and they can walk and you say the word and they can see and you say the word and they're made clean. God, I pray for everybody here who's in shame and in darkness and feels dirty and worthless for whatever reason from their past that you and this, if you haven't already cleansed them, this would be a moment of cleansing. Will you wash over us with your word right now? Start saying to people in this room online, be clean, be clean, be clean. And if he's saying that to you, stop where you're going and turn. Turn to him. He is the only sinless Savior who came to serve you by giving his life for you as your sacrifice, as your substitute. And you can be made whole and be seen as holy. No matter how many people you've slept with, no matter how many lies you've told, no matter who you've killed, you can be made new. 
I pray, I pray, God, you do that with the power of your spirit right now. Father, I pray, I pray for believers that need to turn back to you, that right now be the moment. You just turn, and you don't need me to lead you, and now you just do that. You turn to him. And I pray for those of us that you want to serve somebody specific. I pray that you'd put their face on our mind right now, or their name, or that this week it'd be so obvious. And I pray that we'd have that heart that, that Todd had in his journal when he was writing, like, what's next? What do you want us to do next? And Father, will you just show us the next faith step for us? Some of us might be big, might be donated a kidney, might be some daily thing where we walk over to a neighbor's house and say, how are you doing today? I don't know. Father, will you do that? It's in Jesus' name I pray.